You're listening to Life of the Record, classic albums told by the people who made them. My name is Dan Nordheim. Brendan Benson grew up in Harvey, Louisiana, and later moved back to his birthplace of Royal Oak, Michigan. As a teenager, he played in punk bands around Detroit, before leaving for Los Angeles. It was there that he met Jason Faulkner, and was inspired to work on solo music. Later, Jason Faulkner helped him record a six-song demo that unexpectedly led to him getting signed to Virgin Records. Brendan Benson's debut album, One Mississippi, was released in 1996. In this episode... For the 25th anniversary, Brendan Benson looks back on how One Mississippi came together. This is The Making of One Mississippi. Hi, this is Brendan Benson, and I'm here on Life of the Record to talk about my debut album, One Mississippi, which came out, I believe, in 1996. I'll have to check my notes. But yeah, there's uh, lots of juicy stuff behind the recording of this album, actually. I was a really young 20-year-old. Like, you know, I was very immature. I'm an only child. I was not prepared for the kind of things that awaited me. (laughs) And I'm like turning 50 this year, and I barely know this stuff now, like barely figuring it out now. You know what I mean? (laughs) I'm drinking tea. If it's good enough for me, then it's good enough for you. We can have tea for two. How do you do? But if you have to leave, then please leave, don't let me keep you. So I was living uh, with this, this woman out in Los Angeles, and her roommate was dating Jason Faulkner of Jellyfish. And I was awestruck. I thought this guy was the coolest guy ever. He was kind of a rock star in my mind. He had made it. You know, he was, he was in this band, and they had a record, and I was just very impressed. I watched him play some shows too during that time and it was unbelievable like I didn't know acoustic guitar and voice could be so cool and exciting you know I guess I was seeing also like the skill involved you know like I kind of want to know how to play guitar better I want to know how to do that I want to I want to know those chords like what is that that's a major seventh chord like what is that that's so cool I was young and I was so enamored you know he turned me on to so many records during that time Odyssey and Oracle being one of them Something Anything, Todd Rundgren. These were things that were like, not the Beatles. They were like, like the Beatles, but they weren't the Beatles. They were like, as good as the Beatles. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know about Harry Nilsson or Randy Newman or any of that stuff. He turned me on to songwriting, really, in essence. And then it was on, like it was game on for me. Just, I started educating myself. I started like just listening to tons of music and I think that's what happened. I think he planted some seeds like that you can do it on your own. You could do it, do this solo. Like, cause I thought I would be in a band. So I was watching this guy who was in a band 
doing it solo, like, wow, that's cool. Like if he can do it, just made it seem tangible. So I moved home, back home into my mom's house and I just locked myself in my bedroom and I just recorded song after song after song. I was just obsessed. Like everything I do in life, I just obsessed to the hilt, hyper-focused, and then came out of the bedroom like in a few years with a bunch of songs. We can empty another day. Please come back and see me sometime. But if you can't sleep, we have bad dreams. And if you're bored or not feeling quite right, head is kind of heavy, tummy is kind of funny. And while I was writing these songs, I met this, this girl named Emma in Michigan, and she was on her way out to Mills College to go to school in Mills College in the Bay Area, California. And I asked her if I could follow her out there, <laughs> and she allowed me that. And I was in love with her. I was wooing her, you know, trying to win her over. And so I went, I moved with her out to Berkeley, California. And while I was out there, I decided to look up an old friend, and I said, Jason, I'd love to come down and visit. Also, I have these songs which I'd love for you to hear. And so uh, that's what I did. I went down there and I stayed with him for a couple nights and I played him my songs. And I seem to remember there was a period, maybe I think I went back to Berkeley with Emma and there was a period of waiting where I didn't hear from him and I didn't know if he liked the song. So I, at some point I figured, well, he doesn't, he's not into them. I don't know what it was weeks later. He called me up and said, dude, I really love these songs. Why don't you come down again and let's record these Let's do a better job recording these and you know, and I'll help you with them and I'll he didn't say the word produce, but I think in retrospect that's what he was doing. We chose six songs to do and we recorded them on his Tascam Porta I don't know, Porta One studio maybe, I forget. It was a four track, a little cassette four track. But he made that thing sing, man. He made it sound great. He was he was like the master of the four track. So he he made everything sound great. He played just about everything, played the drums, the bass, you know, and, and I sang the songs, of course, and played a little guitar. <laughs> and those were the songs. In fact, those so-called demos led me to getting signed to uh, Virgin Records. In fact, there was a little bidding war. I was kind of being courted by Columbia Records in New York and Atlantic also in Los Angeles. And it was pretty crazy. So these, these six songs, I mean, it started me off on my career. We can have tea tonight. Tea was, I think, I wanted to come out sounding like I was going to play intelligent pop music. This is going to be meaningful and deep. This is not, it's not bubblegum, or and this isn't, you know, grunge. I don't know. So I wanted to kind of make a statement with that. Ironically, it's about drinking tea and it's kind of lighthearted, sounding kind of bubblegum, but, but no, I think I wanted to kind of show my chops. The trilogy, as I call it, you know, the, the first three songs on the record, I kind of was into the idea of, at the time, I think I was listening to a lot of Gershwin. I was really kind of, at this point, going way over the top now into the craft of songwriting. But yeah, I was listening to Gershwin, Cole Porter, and they, they would do like these intros to songs, right? And I was also listening to a lot of Paul McCartney, like Band on the Run was a big one at the time. I loved how he did this, like he did these medleys or these recurring themes on his album. I love that kind of stuff. So I, w I wanted to kind of do something, I wanted to dazzle people in the beginning. You know, I was kind of wanting to pull out all the stops. <laughs> I, was, 
I was very excited, very overzealous and very excited. There were these major labels interested in signing me and putting out an album, you know, and it was crazy. I was flying out, I, was, I flew out to New York and met with Steve Berkowitz at Columbia Records, who had also signed, just recently had signed uh, Jeff Buckley. And so he was talking a lot about Jeff too, I remember at the time, and that kind of weirded me out, you know, because he was supposed to be interested in me, but really talking about Jeff a lot. And but it was also kind of freaking me out. Jeff Buckley was kind of a, a glimpse into the future, I thought, maybe a little bit like, okay, so here's here's this Jeff Buckley guy no one's ever heard of, and he's written some songs, and you know, he just released that cafe record, I think, and, and he was getting some buzz and, and getting some money and stuff like that. So all this, all these ideas were going around in my head while I was meeting with these people, and I was very apprehensive, I guess. Worried about making the wrong decision, worried about making a decision based solely on money, too. You know, I was kind of trying to be smart about it, so. I ended up going with Virgin Records because they were the smallest of the three, really. And uh, that was the basis of my decision. And Andy Factor was the NR guy there, and he was a great guy, also really young, like just a bit older than I am, I think. And he was about to sign Elliott Smith, which fell through in the end, but that really impressed me because, you know, I heard some Elliott Smith, and I was like, oh, okay, I want to be on your team, <laughs> you know. But that kind of later fell through. But anyhow... I think I was kind of gauging, you know, Jeff Buckley seemed maybe a little too much too quickly. Elliot seemed like, okay, something I can I could hang with, more my more my style, you know. Also Beck was getting very popular then. All this to say, it made me very cautious, I guess, about things. And in fact, in the end probably served me no good because in retrospect I think I was too uh, apprehensive about stuff. It was so overwhelming. For me as a 20 year old i don't know 21 year old in fact aside from some punk bands that i'd been in in high school you know i hadn't really performed in front of people at all i mean as a guitarist in these punk bands but not as a front man you know so that was kind of yet to be determined and still is to this day maybe arguably <laughs> You can't escape the jails or the crucifier's nails So just have a seat, breathe slowly And deeply repeat after me, I'm sorry Yeah, there was a school of musicians or a kind of a group of musicians around Los Angeles Jason Faulkner, John Bryan, Grantley Phillips, of course, the Largo scene and I was fortunate enough to witness that and in fact be on a, a night John inviting me up there one night but yeah and Elliot had played it and he, it's all it was almost like a rite of passage at one point you know Largo like it was a passage to this school of music really and it was kind of a clever you know classically trained kind of school which I don't even know what to call it like just super gifted school of <laughs> musicians or something and you know the elite and they were craftsmen they were craftspeople you know they could write a the perfect song like Elliot could do that you know and Jason Faulkner John Bryan yeah they could I mean he on command they could just write a song you know it takes me like days weeks it was weird I, I was kind of a on the periphery of that I guess you know I was there the whole time but never 
you know, like aside from one performance at Largo, which I think I was terrible. I was so nervous, but I was pretty much invisible. You're watching all these people, these great people though, you know, it was kind of an awesome place to be in. I mean, just, just a fly on the wall in Los Angeles at that time, you know, hanging out with the Greys and meeting Red Cross guys and, and the Jellyfish guys, all those, you know, Roger Manning. And it was such a cool scene, you know, very exciting and everyone was so talented and everyone was so gifted. And I remember at one point driving by like Cantor's on Fairfax and seeing John Bryan, it was like, you know, three o'clock in the morning and seeing John Bryan in, in his robe outside Cantor's kind of holding court with all these people around. I think he was playing guitar in a, in a robe. But you know, I think ultimately, I mean, you know, not to, not to poo-poo it, but ultimately I think it kind of, it kind of gave me a complex. I mean, I feel like I never felt good enough. I always felt inferior. I always felt kind of not quite like that caliber. So it was like, you know, like I said, elitist. I mean, it was kind of, um, it was sort of exclusive, you know? I don't know, maybe it wasn't. So dress your sons and daughters in neutral colors and pray. So dress your sons and daughters in neutral colors and pray. Yeah, bird's eye view. <laughs> I'm not sure what it was about. It was inspired, believe it or not, it was inspired by a conversation about gang banging in Los Angeles. <laughs> I was sitting with my friends at the farmer's market in Los Angeles and talking about South Central and I had never been there. And oh, I think I was wearing a bandana. I think that's what sparked the conversation. I had a bandana in my pocket and a friend of mine said, you know, you probably shouldn't be sporting a blue bandana hanging out of your back pocket like that, you know? And I was like, really? Are you kidding? Or, you know? He's like, no, actually, you probably shouldn't, you know? So I was like, wow, okay, this gang stuff is like for real? So I started thinking about it, but songs for me always kind of go on tangents, you know? But Bird's Eye View, that's kind of the impetus for that song, you know? Hard to believe. The end lyrics, I think, um, so dress your sons and daughters in neutral colors is kind of a giveaway, but yeah, it's very tangential, that song. I learned how to go da 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 on the guitar. So that's like the basis for the whole song, I think. I think I was just excited about my my hammer on I learned. Like <laughs> I mean, I don't play very well now, but I certainly didn't play very well then. And like it is kind of raggedy because I was kind of like making a point of saying like this is how I play it. Like sitting pretty took a turn from what it was because of the story is that I went to New Orleans and made this record with Jason and completed it and then scrapped it because I didn't play on it. Jason and I went out to, to New Orleans to make it. I picked New Orleans. I wanted to, you know, it was a destination record. <laughs> it was my, it was during the days, I mean, money was just flowing, right? During the days when just record companies were writing checks. And I said, okay, I picked Kingsway in New Orleans. I love New Orleans. And I didn't pick it because of Daniel Lenoir. I hadn't, I didn't even know who Daniel Lenoir was at the time. So Jason and I went to New Orleans and we made it at the Egyptian Room and Kingsway, two studios. 
it was a bad scene. It wasn't going very well. He was kind of taken over and I was feeling like left out and I was pissed and we got through it. We made this album. I was not happy with it. So I went back to my A&R guy, Andy Factor, and I said, check this out. I mean, I don't think this is the record that we want to put out, is it? I mean, it sounds like a Jason Faulkner record, <laughs> you know, with me singing on it, which by the way, this record should really be out because it's amazing. I mean, it, he did a great job, but just, I don't think he like took into consideration my whatever, me, you know, much at all. So it was a big, it was a big controversy. You know, the record company was like, well, what are we gonna do, scrap it and then make another one? And yeah, that's what we did. unbelievable they just said okay let's do it again okay so hundreds of thousands of dollars later and i'm like you know got this bellyache now i've got this new reflux thing and i'm just a wreck kind of you know and and now i've i gotta make the record again this time i'm gonna make it at home i decide so i pick hyde street studios it just kind of has some cool history and, and some griminess to it i liked and i'm gonna pick a producer but this time i'm gonna pick somebody you know not a friend and not you know someone without this prior relationship this teacher student thing you know which was hard to break hard to get through that during the making of this record and so Ethan Johns was mentioned I don't know he was thrown into the hat by my manager then Richard Brown and of course I'm a fan of his dad so <laughs> immediately I'm like yeah well who's this yeah hell yeah already I'm down you know if his dad is Glenn Johns then he's got to know how to make records but I went ahead and met him anyhow, and turns out he's an awesome guy, so. And I think I was maybe his first big project. Yeah, he went on to make great, you know, all these cool records, Kings of Leon. But yeah, so I made it with Ethan Johns, and I also chose a very, very special person, secret weapon, Michael Andrews. And Michael and I just became friends really quickly, and we, you know, he was my advocate. He helped me get my ideas across because he was a cool guy, and he was super talented himself, like very, very talented. He was able to kind of like understand what I wanted. And he was almost my, you know, liaison with Ethan at times, a lot of times, because I didn't speak music at the time. I didn't know how to talk about it. I would usually just be frustrated, like, why doesn't this sound right? So Michael was, he was the man. He just would explain it to me in whatever way, you know. He loved my music too, and he was happy to play it. So I wanted him to be in on it. So he played bass and he played all kinds of crap on it. He played keys. and. And then I got Woody Saunders, an old friend and bandmate from Detroit. I played with him in many bands. We've fallen out in and out over girls. And <laughs> he's just a dude, a great guy, you know, and, and he came out. So Woody came out and stayed, actually lived with me for that time. And we'd go to Hyde Street every day and uh, meet up with Michael and Ethan and go to work. It was, it was a blast. And if she wants the man, she tells me. And if she wants some love, I kiss her And when I'm close, you know she can smell me And when I'm gone, I'll surely miss her
sitting pretty. I wrote that song, of course, in my bedroom alone, just no audience, you know, not thinking, not no audience in mind, not thinking twice about it. But it was pointed out to me later while I was on tour in some college somewhere, some college town. I was on a radio station and the DJ was taking calls, live, you know, live calls. And a woman called and said, I find that song offensive, <laughs> you know. What do those lyrics mean? You know, it sounds like abusive and misogynistic and, and it is, of course. I mean, it, it sounds, well, <laughs> sorry, not it is, but it sounds that way, yes. That was a defining moment in my life. I hadn't an argument for her. I d didn't know what to say, you know, like I said, well, I didn't intend for anyone to hear this song when I wrote it. I mean, I, so I wasn't really checking myself, you know, and of course I, I would never hit a woman. I'm, I, you know, I would never tie up a woman or anything like it's artistic license. You know, it's just shit you think, I mean, but I don't know, since then, I think twice about my lyrics. <laughs> I've always, I've always thought twice about them, which sucks, I think. My mother raised me single-handedly In a Louisiana hill called Harvey I've never known what I'm supposed to be Turned over every rock for clues Of what it is to be me Oh, I'm blessed, yes. This is also part of the original six. I like saying that, the original six. Makes it sound important. But yeah, this one is a little more autobiographical. In fact, a lot autobiographical. I think this is my attempt at a true autobiographical, my life story sort of song, which I don't think I did very well. But I think I'm Blessed started me off on, I think it was the first of, yeah, these autobiographical songs, like more so than, you know, other songs are kind of, I play characters in them, you know, or whatever. But I'm Blessed is definitely, you know, it's that's me talking and, there have been others where it's me talking. And in these me talking songs, it's always about the South. It's all these, these same themes. So I think, you know, Louisiana and being an only child, I think comes up a lot. But that's, I think I'm Blessed is kind of the, you know, was the first of those songs. I think like during that time, I didn't know what I wanted probably. I mean, I know Jason has said that to me, you know, and, and he's right. Like I just was kind of trying to figure it out. I mean, trying to grow up really fast and then trying to figure out who I was. I mean, trying to figure out a name for the album or a, what I would be called. I didn't even know. Like I thought it was going to be a name, like a band name. I wanted to call it a band name, but it all happened so quickly. And you'd think in all the makings of the record that I would have thought of a band name, but I couldn't think of one. So. In the end, it was a very quick decision to call it Brendan Benson. Of course, I wish I hadn't. <laughs> wish I'd thought of that band name. Like, you gotta be a solo guy like Peter Chris or, you know, Gene Simmons. <laughs> you can't just, like, come out on the scene with some fucking name. You gotta know who the fuck that is, right? Twitchy lady, so lovely with your short hair. Where do you come from? Where are you going? 
I wrote Cross-Eyed when I was working at Off the Record in Royal Oak, Michigan. It was one of the best jobs ever. Um, <laughs> I worked there with all my friends. You know, it was great. But one day, this girl came in to the record store and she just, I don't know, what something about her just struck me. You know, I was kind of, I was into this girl. I don't know, whatever. But she had this strange kind of twitch about her. I don't know, maybe she, I think maybe it was neurological. I don't know, she had some sort of literal twitch, you know. But I thought she, it was kind of sexy or something, you know, that kind of turned me on. I don't know, it was like, so she left and I turned to my friend who was working there too. And I thought about telling him about this chick and how I thought she was really hot. And But I thought twice about it. I thought I can't say that because uh, he'll make fun of me. She was like twitchy, you know. So that's where twitchy lady comes from. <laughs> I can't wait to get you out of here. In the end, I felt like it was a little tortured. The songs were a little like tossed around and beat up a lot by then. Like changed and then put back together and changed. It was too much thought. Yeah, too much fiddling, tweaking and redoing. That's a lesson I learned later on, long after that. You know, going, moving back home to Detroit and meeting Jack and I think it was kind of the opposite of that, which was, you know, just like, I don't know, you didn't have to be perfect. There was no major seventh chords involved. It wasn't about that. It was about what you're singing, you know, it was about the the content and, or it was about the sound you're making, you know, not where your fingers are on the fretboard, you know, I don't know. I had my head up my ass too much. So that was good for me. I, I moved home for that reason. I was home visiting Detroit when I saw the White Stripes and their first show, in fact. And I saw this scene going on, this whole garage rock scene. And I was like, this is where I come, this is what I want in my life. You know what I mean? Like these guys are, yeah, it's a lot of posing and shit. It's a lot of like style over substance, but the substance is fucking cool and exciting and it's easy to play. <laughs> it's not all these. And I don't have to like create, every song has to be a night at the opera, whatever. I don't have to write that fucking album, you know? I can just write, stupid little songs like I used to. Because that's what One Mississippi is, a collection of stupid little songs, in my mind. Like, I had years to write all these stupid little songs and finally I got to put them on an album. <laughs> this is only temporary Jason came up with that minor thing in the in the beginning. The song was always Wait, this is only temporary, these songs are my worst habits. That and then he did that. I was like, whoa! <laughs> I thought that was cool as hell. 
Together we made beautiful music. The interesting thing about this song, I think, was the first line, this is only temporary, actually was stolen from a, I believe, Tesla lyric. Tesla, you remember that band? Um, shit, I don't know, in the 90s. You know, they were like a heavy metal band or something. And, and I heard a song on the radio. I was just driving in my car and I heard a song on the radio. And, and I think the lyric said something about temporary. And I just thought temporary was such a pretty word. So me just purely is really kind of based all around the phrase, this is only temporary. Pain is temporary, you know? Yeah, like it'll only be temporary or the song is temporary. Maybe that was my subconscious way of saying, it's okay to say what you're about to say. It allowed me to maybe speak my mind or something. I don't know, this weird cathartic thing there, I think. I say, you know, these songs are my worst habits. Each song is a bad habit. This song I'm proud of. I, I like the lyric a lot, even though it was inspired by a Tesla song. I don't even know if it was Tesla, actually. It was a bad, it was just some bad, like, heavy metal song. But it had that beautiful word temporary in it. We kept a lot of his production ideas intact. You know, like uh, Me Just Purely or something. You know, that bridge and Me Just Purely. That's Jason Faulkner, you know. But that's me on the singing the vocal. That's my melody. So to recreate that, how do you do that without Jason? There were like things that he had done that I didn't even understand how, you know, he had sung background parts that I was like, I don't know what the fuck that is. Like, I don't know how to do that. But the idea of some backgrounds would be great, you know, like, so what do we sing? You know, <laughs> we just were winging it. And we could figure it out too, like some stuff we could figure out, but it was just like, but that's the thing that doesn't sound like me, you know, so let's not do that. I thought I knew what I sounded like then. <laughs> me just Touring with Heat Miser was really enlightening for me. I mean, those guys were really smart, really kind of, I think, a little older than I was at the time. And I looked up to them. And, you know, Elliot, of course, at that point, I was a fan of Elliot's and kind of starstruck a little bit, you know, even though Elliot was, <laughs> at that time, no one really had heard of him. And long before the Grammys and all that, or the Oscars, wherever it was. Elliot, I remember once, gave me some great advice I was sitting with him at the bar in, I don't know where we were, on tour somewhere, it doesn't matter. And I said, you know, I, I don't know, I think I was trying to pick, I was picking his brain, I was geeking out and asking him like about his songs and stuff, I think, and being a general pain in the ass and just asking him what, what advice does he have, you know? And his advice was to uh, just love everything you do and not try to guess what somebody might like or not try to, don't do it for anyone else but yourself and make sure that you genuinely love it, you know? And to this day, I, when in doubt, I think, all right, I, sometimes I gotta stand back and do the Elliot test. Like, do I even like this? Do I love this? It's an important question to ask yourself, you know?
keep yourself in check. Got No Secrets, that was a later addition to the album, written between the Jason album and the new album. I did a, a lot of demos. I think I wanted to improve on the album. So I scrapped a lot of songs while keeping some others and brought in new songs. So Got No Secrets was a new one. And, uh, you know, not my, not my favorite. This one is um, not me talking. <laughs> And a lot of people think there's the lyric about, you know, I took drugs and my dad beat me and stuff and completely not true, just fantasy. And this song is kind of a silly, kind of a police, I guess my attempt at like the police or something. This song though, you know, it's like, I feel like it's one of those songs, I wish I hadn't put it on the record actually, because it was a later edition and it shouldn't have been on. Like, I think it wasn't very well realized, you know, like. I think I was trying to get too poppy. I was trying to be like write songs for the radio. Like thinking I needed some kind of radio kind of, I don't know. Once again, thinking way too much about it. So I kind of have disowned this song, I think. <laughs> I don't play this one live ever. I can't even sing it. I couldn't even sing it for you. So fuck that song. That's <laughs> just inspiring. Quick, roll tape. <laughs> oh, shit. Does it break your heart each time I fall apart? Does it give you How about you? Is that the one with the laughing in the beginning? The beginning of side two, yeah. That, everyone's always wondering. I thought I'd give you an exclusive here what that is, what is inspiring. Because people have asked over the years, like, what is he saying? What does that mean? It was a fart. We were standing around a microphone, Michael and I and Woody were standing around the mic singing, how about you, singing those background vocals. And Michael farted and it was the worst smelling thing. And he, <laughs> so he's the only one, we had to, we bailed and he's the only one who remained at the microphone <laughs> cracking up and saying, that shit's inspiring. <laughs> Still funny. Still fucking funny. J. Well, Emma J was written about my, my beautiful Emma J. I just wanted to write a love song for her. Well, this song's cool because it was featured in The Zero Effect, which was a movie with Ben Stiller and Bill Pullman. And um, I remember Emma and I went to see it in the theater 
and it was mind-blowing i mean it was the best thing ever when that song came on in the theater like you, you know when you hear your song in a movie in the theater it's like crazy sounding it's it's awesome it sounds weird it sounds different but it sounds massive and of course in this movie like with these big names and stuff and we were it was very impressive and we were dazzled and it was a great feeling i think for both of us i mean like not only did i write her a love song but then i presented it to her in like you know thx sound <laughs> or whatever and uh and i think she was aptly impressed i think she was very moved by it i mean genuinely moved i remember that night it was it was great great night great night for us i remember that one <laughs> And of course, Michael Andrews plays the solo on Emma J, which is some of the most brilliant notes ever played in succession. Brilliant, God. That's where you can kind of hear his genius coming out. Like that's, that's all him, that's his solo. So good. I remember writing this one. It took me all day and I was determined to write it. I was sick of writing songs about me or about girls or about, I don't know, just, I wanted to branch out and write. I wanted to write about anything I wanted to write about, you know, I wanted to be able to do that. So it was a challenge to myself, I guess. It was a discipline. And when I had the first couple lines, I once knew a woman, she was skin and bones. It reminded me of a Robin Hitchcock song, and I knew I had to write it because that's where I wanted to go. You know, I mean, I just thought it was a good discipline for me. See, I was always thinking, overanalyzing things way too much. But then it was cool because this song, uh, I heard that the Foo Fighters played this song sometimes in Japan or something or on a tour. So I thought that was pretty cool. I thought I was so clever by leaving off the I, I guess. I don't know why I thought that. It didn't occur to me that I could say imaginary girl, imaginary girl. Honestly, didn't think of that. <laughs> imaginary girl is one of those just sort of pop songs I don't, you know, that I feel like has not withstood the test of time. <laughs> and I'm not surprised, you know, it's a little vapid, a little, I can't even remember it. Really? <laughs> I didn't even listen to this album. I couldn't even listen to it before we did this. I thought about it, but I was like, nope. 
<laughs> not going there. <laughs> I gotta listen. I gotta actually. I do have to listen to this album. For instance, Imaginary Girl. I I don't actually don't really remember that song. Maybe it's cool. I should go listen to it. <laughs> but I think it's one of those. That's one of those songs like Imaginary Girl. I was very aggressive with my vocal. I think, and it's hard for me to listen to that now. I was a little over the top with it. You know what I mean? And I can't stand to listen to this record, by the way. Like, this is a total cringe record for me. Like, my voice, everything, uh, I'm trying to, you know, I'm way, you know, sounding kind of emo and kind of, oof, bad. But genuinely, it's like a cult record. I'm so surprised that people know about it. And then people cite it as being like an influence and stuff. And I, I think that's so cool. But hell no, man, that record's so terrible. <laughs> I mean, truth be told. House in Virginia We'd love to see you, Emma Red velvet chairs For you to sit on, Emma House in Virginia Another song from my lovely Emma J. This was my interpretation before ever having been to her grandmother's house, <laughs> but hearing all about it, this was my interpretation of it. Like, you know, she would tell me about her grandmother's house in Virginia, and uh, it sounded just lovely. It sounded very picturesque or cinematic or whatever you want to say, and inspiring. So I wrote the song, and, and then later, finally did go to her grandmother's house in Virginia, and it was exactly like I described it. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but kind of pretty much was. <laughs> Emma and I lasted, <clears throat> we lasted 10 years. She moved home with me to Detroit at the end of the 90s, I think it was. And it took a couple of years, but we eventually split up. We remain great friends. We always will be great friends. I love her. But yeah, it just wasn't in the cards for us. She was everything to me at this time, you know, during during One Mississippi and, and Lapalco even. She was my support, my rock. She was my foundation, you know. So she's in all this music. She was my Ono, you know what I mean? <laughs> she was like always with me and, you know, when she wasn't in school. But yeah, and she lives in Switzerland now and I can't wait to go visit her out there, in fact. the songs were kind of written because I was so sad and lonely a lot of these songs you know and and then I met this girl Emma you know and I I was in love with her and I didn't want to leave and and I wanted to be with her but I couldn't because I had to go sing the songs <laughs> you know I was I couldn't figure it out like when I first went on tour for one Mississippi my first tour ever I, I don't remember exactly what it was it was probably a local thing or whatever but I remember um, having to practice with the band, with my band and stuff. And I had to learn how to like play while standing up and singing at the same time. It was all like different. It was, it was crazy. I was starting from, you know, really just zero. 
and I had to like, I was supposed to be impressing people, you know, in these cities, like going to play like the new act on Virgin Records, you know, the new whatever, his record's hot, he's gonna be the new thing, you know? And I was just failing. <laughs> I hired, you know, I hired my friends to play. Most of them couldn't play instruments. I taught them how to play the bass, and you know, I'd say, just, just go like this and this, and, you know. I mean, it was ridiculous. I went to Japan, in fact, on a tour to Japan and was not invited back because I think the reason was because it wasn't good enough. <laughs> and it was amazing. The shows were amazing, which is the ironic part. I mean, it was like a sea of people out, you know, in the place and then outside the place. And so we thought we had done great. And we were, I mean, the music was terrible, I think is what the problem was. <laughs> Like in Japan, that was, yeah, the beginning of the end. The day I was going to home or something, they had me into the office for a meeting. And I have a translator. They're speaking to me in Japanese. She's translating that the show was not, I don't know what the words were exactly, but it was pretty much saying like, this was not good and this is not acceptable. And maybe they said, you know, we'll, we'll be in touch. <laughs> we'll have our lawyers be in touch or something. I mean, it was really, I'm probably making, maybe making it sound worse than it was, but it was really weird, yeah. Like, cause the show was really fun. I remember we're, I remember us climbing at one point, climbing up on shit. Some of us were climbing up on the rafters. The crowd was going berserk. I mean, whatever, fuck it. Like, that's a good show, I think. Like, cause if you can get a Japanese crowd to go berserk, you know, maybe they weren't going berserk now that I think about it. <laughs> My memory is like, it was just crickets probably. We're like climbing up on shit. No one gives a fuck. No, I mean, I had just a bad live show. Like plain and simple. No way of, <laughs> there's no way of getting around that. It sucked. I'm sure on some level I was relieved because I think I probably, I think I probably did it. In retrospect, I think I probably was sabotaging it the whole time, you know. I was scared of it. All these acts were becoming, you know, Beck was breaking and, and I remember people were saying like, you could be like Beck, the next Beck and stuff. And I was like, that just didn't sit well with me. You know, now that I think about it, I don't know what they were talking about, but any kind of talk of success or fame. And I was like doubled over. I'm sure I sabotaged it. I'm sure I did all that. Hiring my friends, you know, yeah. Maybe even making, not releasing the Jason record, you know, maybe it was too good because it was really good. Being a performer, being a, you know, an entertainer, that part I hadn't worked on. I hadn't had the, you know, any experience doing that. So my big Tom Petty story, it was like terrible. Yeah, I got to open for Petty because we shared the same manager really was how it happened. And so I got a night at the Fillmore because he was doing, I think maybe two weeks or he was doing a residency and having different openers. So I got to get one of the slots, I got one night. And I was, you know, this was my big opportunity, I think. This is my big moment, you know? 
I got Ethan Johns to play with me. He played some pump organ. And Dan McCarroll, who was in the Grays, who was the drummer in the Grays at the time, he played this cocktail kit. And I played my songs for, you know, this San Francisco audience and they were cool to me, but you know, it was terrible. <laughs> and then uh, I asked, of course, I asked my manager, like, what did Tom think, you know? And, and he said, I think Tom didn't have anything to say. <laughs> he didn't see it or something like that. But he did say that Mike Campbell saw it. And Mike said that he just didn't get it. This was a blast to record. I think this was all of us in the room, including Ethan Johns on keys. Ethan was on the Hammond B3, which he plays so well. And Woody on drums, of course, Michael on bass. And this was done live. And we, we did a bunch of takes and we edited it together, spliced it all together. And you can hear it. You can hear the tempo speed up. It's hilarious or slow down but it was so fun to do it was great it was like i wanted to do i don't know i wanted to do that kind of fun beatles studio stuff like we did many takes i remember and because we were all vibing on it man we were it was just such a droney song you know but we were all trying to get the right magical moments to happen i think the song itself the lyric or the inspiration comes from this girl that she wore this uh chapstick i guess or you know it's smelled like cherries and for some reason, whenever she came around, I don't know, she piqued my interest. I was always interested in the, I think the twitchy lady or the weird, the people that they were on the periphery or I don't know, like kind of a guilty pleasure thing. Almost ashamed to say I was attracted to this person, you know, cause she was uncool maybe. So I think that's what that's about. Like my secret was that she was the one that smelled like cherries. Yeah, smells like cherries and you know it makes me These songs are so old, I can't can't get down anymore. And I can't, and there's nothing like the recordings, I can't listen to those, because, you know, I don't know, it's weird. Maybe they're also, maybe I've kind of turned my back on them in a way, like, you know, mentally. Like it's, you know, a little bit painful to go there. I mean, that might be a little too stonery to say, but I feel like there might be some truth in that. Like, they're kind of come with bad, I don't know, bad vibes, a little bit. It turned kind of ugly, you know, with Jason. I mean, not ugly, but it, it just, we fell out. We totally like, he was so angry that I chose to not use the record. And and then there was this incident with the woman, the so-called friend who, she asked me, would I mind if she gave it to her friend at a record company? And I said, no, please do, that would be awesome. And it turns out it was Andy Factor, but also some other people got a hold of it 
And this bidding war happened, a slight, not bidding war, it was more like a courting. I just met a few people. But she, this so-called friend, in the end wanted this big finder's fee. So I was, I'm not playing dumb or I'm not, I don't want to sound like a victim, but you know, I was kind of this slightly dumb kid from the Midwest out in Los Angeles dealing with some heavy shit, you know, heavy hitters, people who knew shit I didn't know. I didn't know what a finder's fee was. I didn't know what a producer was. I didn't know any of that crap. All I knew is that she did this for me and I thanked her and I didn't know I should pay her, but it was, you know, it was a lawyer involved and shit. And I was kind of like, whoa, man, this is gnarly. She just guessed that I got all this money, I guess. I don't know. So weird. Yeah, so I was dealing with all this shit, man. So I moved the fuck out of Los Angeles in with Emma. You know, she I finally won her, won her over. And uh, we moved in together. And I was living this better life, you know, that, without these kind of vultures. But I also had to, like, go to work. I had to go on tour and work this record. So, I mean, I'm being slightly dramatic, you know, at the time. I mean, of course, life was great. I had all this money, you know, finally, and first time in my life, only time in my life. But yeah, when I think back on it, you know, it's like, there's some gnarly shit that went down. I'm so glad to hear that One Mississippi is still being talked about and still being like mentioned by, you know, my peers and younger musicians and people citing it as being an inspiration or an influence. And the fact that it that's kind of a cult classic record really makes me feel great. Although, you know, I can hardly listen to it nowadays. Um, it still, of course, has a huge place in my heart because it's where I come from, you know, it's a snapshot of that time in my life. But also it was, yeah, like the beginning of my career and the beginning of all these things. It's a very significant record to me, for sure. Even though I can't listen to it. <laughs> Visit lifeoftherecord.com for more information about Brendan Benson. You'll also find a link to stream or purchase One Mississippi. Thanks for listening.